Luke 22, starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined that table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your people. We thank you for the blessings of your word, and Lord, this morning, especially we thank you for the blessing of the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray that you would grant, grant us all the eyes to see, the ears to hear, hearts to receive um, these truths as they are. Uh, Lord, we pray that any distractions would you would remove, uh, that you would overcome uh, lack of voice, and Lord, give everybody the ability to be attentive to your word, and may you be glorified through what is preached this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. So yes, as we just read, we pick up again this morning, uh, continuing in our series on the mission of God in the world. Now we've been looking at God's intention to redeem his fallen creation, and we've been exploring different aspects of what God intends for the life of his redeemed people. And we've been looking specifically at some of what God intends for the church. Now so far we've touched on baptism, on singing, and on church membership, and if you've missed any of those sermons, I would strongly encourage you to find them online so you can get caught up uh, with our series. And so we turn this Lord's Day to the topic of the Lord's Supper. And so I hope you still have your Bibles open and we'll unpack that text that was read for us in Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So first question that comes to my mind when reading this, why in the world do the translators say at table instead of at the table? Well, I looked into it and could not find any satisfying explanation. Uh, it seems to simply be an odd translational decision by the ESV translators, uh, as the ESV is the only translation that puts it this way. So, um, yeah, sorry, I could not satisfy your curiosity. Uh, but with that said, now let's look to the text. Uh, to give some background, uh, we are jumping here into the Gospel of Luke during Passion Week. That is, during the week that Christ was going to give his life. And Jesus says here, notice, uh, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus and his disciples are here. They have come to Jerusalem 
and Jesus was received as a king. You may remember palm branches and coats were thrown down on the road before him as he rode into town on a donkey, and the people cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus and his disciples now are here in the upper room to celebrate the Passover feast. And Jesus says he has been looking forward to this, uh, to eating this feast with his disciples before he suffers. Notice here that Jesus knew very well what was going to happen to him. Some skeptics of Christianity view Jesus as simply a failed prophet. Right? They think, well, here's a guy, he was a teacher, he had some good things to say, uh, but ultimately he failed in his mission and got himself crucified unintentionally by the Romans. However, if you just read the Gospel accounts, you can see how uh, self-evidently false this theory really is. To give a few examples, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And as we see here at the Last Supper as well, Jesus was very conscious of the fact that he was soon going to suffer. Jesus was not a failed prophet who ended up getting crucified accidentally. He very deliberately had set his face toward Jerusalem. And he had even told his disciples on more than one occasion that he was going to be arrested, suffer many things, be rejected by the Jews, killed, and then raised again on the third day. And in fact, it was for this very purpose that he had come. I had earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup when he had given thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus explains that he will not eat of the Passover again, he says, until it is fulfilled. Until the Passover is fulfilled. Uh, he will not drink the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Now, what does all of this mean? Well, first we need to back up and look at the Passover. Uh, what is the Passover? Well, the Passover was a commemorative meal that Israel was commanded to keep in order to remember the great acts of deliverance of God, uh, of his pardon me, of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. You may remember we preached through Exodus uh, a while ago now, I guess, and God had sent nine plagues on the Egyptians and was about to bring a final plague. God was going to send his destroying angel, who was going to kill the firstborn of every household in the land of Egypt. But God provided a way of salvation for the people of Israel. They were to take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and then spread the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel of their houses. God said in Exodus 11, verse 13, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
So notice there we get the name Passover. God said he will pass over every house that is covered by the blood of the Lamb. They will be then spared from this judgment. Now as part of the celebration, as part of this ordinance, Israel for an entire week was commanded to eat only unleavened bread as a commemoration of their exodus out of Egypt. You may remember that after the final plague, Israel had been thrust so forcefully out of the land of Egypt that they did not have time to wait for their cakes to rise. The leaven didn't have time to do its work. And so every year, Israel celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were first to go through the whole house and cleanse the house of leaven. There was not to be any leaven in the whole house. And then for seven days, they ate only unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, they were to have a feast to the Lord, uh, celebrating the Passover, eating the Passover lamb. And this was then a special meal to celebrate and commemorate the Passover. It was an annual reminder of God's amazing deliverance of his people. And so Jesus and his disciples, as God-fearing Israelites, are here observing the Passover. And it is in this setting that Jesus says he will not eat the Passover or drink wine again until it is fulfilled, until the kingdom of God comes. There was therefore, notice this, a fulfillment of the Passover that was coming. The Passover, therefore, was a type. It was a shadow of a greater deliverance that was yet to come. God was again providing an unblemished lamb as a sacrifice. One whose blood would cover over God's covenant people so that they would be spared from judgment. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 or 7 makes this connection uh, quite clearly. In calling on the Corinthian church to exercise church discipline, Paul says this, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So notice what Paul says there. Christ is the true Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed. And so just as an unblemished lamb was sacrificed for each household in the first Passover, so also Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God, was sacrificed. He died on the cross, taking the punishment due to the sins of his people. And now, all those who are covered by his blood, so to speak, will be delivered from judgment. The Passover pointed to Christ. It was a true event. It actually happened in history. It was a marvelous deliverance. And yet at the same time, it was also a parable. It was our God, the master storyteller, foreshadowing the greater deliverance yet to come. In 1 Corinthians, Paul draws application from the Passover, saying, The ceremonies of the Passover are fulfilled in Christ. 
So we are no longer required to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread as Jews did, but rather, as Paul applies it, we are to cleanse ourselves, not of literal leaven, but of the leaven of malice and evil. We are to ensure the purity of the church so that we would remain a pure and unleavened loaf. Christ was about to be the fulfillment of the Passover, as he says. I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Christ, the fulfillment of the Passover, and this is the reason why we as New Covenant members do not need to observe the Passover feast. However, we are commanded to observe something else, something closely related to the Passover, something that Christ commanded us. Let's continue reading here. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now this, of course, is the institution of the Lord's Supper, or what we sometimes call communion. Jesus took bread and he told his disciples that this bread is his body, which was given for them. So just as Christ broke this bread, so also his body was going to be broken. In fact, that very night, Jesus was going to be betrayed, given over to the Romans and the Jews, where he would then receive a mock trial, complete with lying witnesses and unjust judges, who would later deliver him over to the Roman guards to be tortured. His body was battered. In fact, he was beaten so badly that by the time he was sentenced to be crucified, he had no strength left to carry his own cross. He was then crucified, and his body was broken. He cried out with a loud voice, it is finished, and then all the life left his lungs. This is the end of his spirit. And so if you are in Christ, he did this for you. This is my body given for you, broken for you. This horrible injustice was the means that God had planned in order to satisfy his justice. This was no meaningless failure. It was not a failed prophet abandoned by God, but it was in fact the very plan of God to purchase the salvation of his people. Christ took it on voluntarily. As he himself said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He gave it up for you, his covenant. This is my body given for you. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
whereas Matthew's Gospel reports it. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood poured out of his hands, his hands, his feet, his head, and side, as he was crucified, pierced, and bore a crown of thorns. This was not merely a tragic and unjust shedding of innocent blood. While it was the greatest injustice and the most heinous evil that has ever been committed on the face of the earth, it was also, in the wisdom, predestination, and definite plan of God, the very means of redemption for his fallen creation. This was the means of establishing a new covenant. As commentator Charles Ellicott writes, the blood which the Son of Man was about to shed was to be, to the true Israel of God, what the blood which Moses had sprinkled on the people had been to outward Israel. It was the true blood of sprinkling, Hebrews 12, 24. And Jesus was thus the mediator of the new covenant, as Moses had been on the old, close quote. So Jesus' words here, as he says, this is my blood of the covenant, harkens back to the words of Moses. You may remember in Exodus 24, after God had given the law to Israel on Mount Sinai, Moses first read that law aloud in the hearing of the people, they responded, of course, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses then responds by taking the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkling it onto the people, saying, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. As you may know, the old covenant was insufficient Although there was nothing wrong at all with the holy law that God had given, the Old Covenant itself did not accomplish enough. It could not fulfill God's redemptive purposes. Something more was yet needed. Consider Hebrews 8, verse 7, it says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Right? If that first covenant had provided everything that we needed, there would be no need to look for a second covenant. But yet God himself had prophesied in the Old Testament about a coming new covenant. So the next thing the author of Hebrews does is he quotes from this text in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into, the, into their minds, minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more, 
So put this all together, follow the significance of everything that has happened in here at the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are celebrating Passover, which was one of the signs of the Old Covenant, Exodus 13, verse 9. And in the middle of this sacred and symbolic meal, Jesus declares that the Passover is going to be fulfilled. And then he declares a new meaning for the wine and unleavened bread that they were using in the Passover feast. Yes, here again, I think, is actually another text to demonstrate the divinity, the deity of Christ. Right? Who other than God has the authority to change the meaning of one of God's ordinances? And so Jesus here says, the bread is his body given for them. The wine is the new covenant in his blood. It is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, I am now establishing the new covenant, in which we have this category already from the prophecy of Jeremiah. A new covenant, not like the one God had made with their fathers. For in this covenant, every true covenant member would have God's law, not written on tablets of stone, as in the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, but on the hearts of God's covenant people. Every true new covenant member would know the Lord, and God would forgive the sins and iniquities of all covenant members. These are, according to Hebrews, the key differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we notice the Old Covenant itself was a mixed covenant. That is, not all uh, Old Covenant members knew the Lord. They were in the covenant, they were circumcised externally, they lived in the promised land and offered sacrifices and received many earthly blessings as covenant members, but their hearts were not circumcised. And so there was the need in the old covenant for those who did know the Lord to call their brothers, their other covenant members, to know the Lord. And so Hebrews chapter 8 says that the new covenant is founded on better promises in the old. For all new covenant members will know the Lord. They will all have the law written on their hearts, and they will all have their sins forgiven. This is the new covenant that Christ was establishing. The forgiveness of sins offered through this new covenant was purchased through the sacrifice of Christ. His body given for his people. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Now as God had taught his people through the types and shadows of the old covenant, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yet Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never truly take away sins. So the sacrifices of the Old Testament then were like a placeholder. They did not truly atone for sin, but they anticipated a day in which a sacrifice would be offered that fulfilled them all. Jesus Christ offered that sacrifice. He died on the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath 
against sin. Hebrews tells us that he then entered the most holy place in heaven, and just as the earthly high priests would offer the blood of the sacrifice in the temple, Hebrews 9 verse 12 says that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, that is, into the presence of God in heaven, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ entered into the presence of God by means of his own blood to make true and perfect atonement for sinners. His body was given. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so the command now goes out to all. Repent of your sins. Confess them to God. Throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ, and you will find him to be a perfect Savior. Now, as we've seen, conversion to Christ means becoming a member, being made into a member of the new covenant. And as we saw from Hebrews and Jeremiah, becoming a new covenant member means that a transformation has taken place. The law of God has been written on your heart. You have died to your old way of life and have been raised to new life in Christ. And this is precisely what we put on display through Christian baptism. Remember, we are buried with Christ under the waters of baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too are raised up to walk in newness of life. Romans 6.4 so we see in this way, baptism then functions as the front door. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, we are baptized into the body of Christ. It is your entrance into the church, the body of Christ. It is a one-time event which symbolizes that which took place in your conversion. The Lord's Supper then, if baptism is the front door, as the entrance, the Lord's Supper then can be seen as an ongoing affirmation from the church that you are a partaker in the body and blood of Christ. So, how does it function as an affirmation? Well, firstly, we do not give the Lord's Supper to non-Christians. Right, just as we do not baptize someone who has not repented of sin and confessed faith in Christ, so also we do not give the sacred sign of participation in the body and blood of Christ to those who are not participants in it. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says of the Lord's Supper, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Non-Christians are not participants in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He is not their Savior nor their Lord. They continue in rebellion to him. So for us to grant non-believers to partake in communion would be firstly to lie about what communion means and would in fact cause them to eat and drink judgment on themselves. 1 Corinthians 11, 29. 
And we'll come back to that text. So that's number one. It's an affirmation because we do not give it to non-believers. So if you receive it, we are saying you are a believer. Secondly, the Lord's Supper functions as an affirmation from the church because it is not given to those who are under church discipline. Now, what is church discipline? Church discipline is the process that Christ has given to us for preserving the purity of his church. Again, as we saw from Hebrews and Jeremiah, all those who are in the new covenant have the law written on their hearts. They have been converted. There's been a change that has taken place in them. As was pictured in baptism, they have died to their old way of life and are now committed to walking completely according to the will of God as revealed in his word. But what are we to do then when someone who has formerly made profession of faith either renounces their faith in Christ, you know, says, I'm not a Christian anymore, I don't believe any of that anymore, or begins living a life of unrepentant sin. Well, Jesus gives us the steps to follow in Matthew 18. First, we are to confront that brother about their sin individually. And if they repent, praise the Lord, you have won your brother. Process ends right there. Uh, but if they will not repent, then you are to take two or three others, at this point usually the elders of the church, who must then establish the truthfulness of those claims. Like, yes, what you're saying is true. This brother is, in fact, an unrepentant sin. And so once the facts are verified, they will then join in calling this brother to repent. If he still refuses, they are to tell it to the church, who then shares collectively in the duty of rebuking this man in sin. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, at this point, you are to view him as an unbeliever. His lifestyle of rebellion, his refusal to repent of his sin, has now undermined his profession of faith. His stubborn refusal to repent of his sin undermines and contradicts what was pictured, put on display, and declared through his baptism. He is not walking a newness of life. He is not dying daily to sin. He is not picking up his cross to follow Christ, and so the church is then to view him as an unbeliever. Again, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians about this very issue, cleanse out the old leaven. He meant they were to remove the unrepentant sinner from their congregation. They were no longer to view him as a brother, they were to view him as an unbeliever. And of course, as we've already outlined, unbelievers may not partake of the Lord's Supper. So someone who is under church discipline may not partake of the Supper. We can no longer give them the sign of participation in Christ's body and blood. And this is in fact where we get the term excommunication. To be a communicant means you are receiving communion. To be excommunicated means you are now forbidden from receiving the sacrament. Now, of course, this does not need to be permanent. 
while one purpose of church discipline is to preserve the purity of the church, another purpose is the restoration of the sinner. Right? Your hope, if you, walk, if you do have to walk through these steps of church discipline, is that it will ultimately bring this brother to repentance, to see him restored. It is therefore one of the means that God has given for our sanctification, uh, to show us the seriousness of sin. Accountability through church discipline is meant to be a blessing. It is meant to preserve the people of God. And in the case of God's elected, is one of the means that he uses to keep his people on the right track. So follow all of this. If you are a communicant, if you are partaking of the Lord's Supper, then it means that the church affirms your profession of faith. We affirm what was declared through your baptism, and as far as we know, there is no sin in your life that is undermining your profession of faith. It is therefore the entire church affirming that we believe you to be a true participant in the body and blood of Christ. We are collectively saying to one another, yes, you are a Christian. Yes, you have been covered by Christ's blood. His body was given for you. We have seen the change in you as you became humble and sorrowful for your sin, repentant unto God, and we have uh, and have received the grace of our beloved Savior. We baptized you, or else affirmed your baptism from another church, and we continue to affirm what was declared through your baptism, that you have died to sin and been raised to walk in newness of life, that you are forgiven, and that you are an heir of eternal life together with us. And so the Lord's Supper, rightly understood, is a great source of assurance. So you see, there is beautiful harmony in the ordinances of the church. Baptism is the entrance. The Lord's Supper is your ongoing affirmation. And, if necessary, church discipline is the exit. It is our firm conviction that this is how Christ intends for the ordinances to function. And this is why we link the Lord's Supper to baptism and church membership. Only members of our church or visiting members in good standing from other faithful churches may partake in the Lord's Supper. For again, as we recently saw in our sermon on membership, God himself requires all Christians to be accountable and participating members of particular local churches. As we looked at in that sermon, there are so many commands that you simply cannot fulfill apart from some kind of functional church membership. And we read some of these in Romans 12 uh, together earlier. And so we would simply ask, which body are you serving with your gifts? Which body are you committed to bearing burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice? Which body of believers can hold you accountable through the possibility of church discipline? 
In which body of believers are you helping hold others accountable through the possibility of church discipline? Which church elders are you in submission to? Which church elders are going to have to give an account for your soul? Hebrews 13, 17. We see there are so many biblical commands, things that God does truly require of all Christians, which cannot be fulfilled apart from some kind of functional church membership. The Lord's Supper is a weighty thing. And so before the church gives someone the sacred ordinance, we must know, are you living the Christian life? Are you committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you honor him and obey him as your Lord? Are you accountable to the church as Christ commands you to be? Are you in subjection to Christ's under shepherds as he commands you to be? Now, if your answer is that you are a Christian, but you don't need to be accountable to any particular church, if your answer is that you are a Christian, but don't need to be under the leadership of any particular church elders, that you are a Christian, but don't need to serve any particular body with your gifts, if this is you, then my friend, you are in sin. And we as a church cannot and must not enable those who are simply seeking to avoid accountability. And so if this is you, we invite you Repent of your sin and obey these commands from Scripture. Join in the accountability and participation that God requires of all his people. Now that's the first group. But the fact is, there are many churches that have unfortunately not taught these things well. Very few churches practice any kind of meaningful membership or godly church discipline. And so the connections between accountability, baptism, and Lord's Supper have been lost for many. Now for those who come from such backgrounds, their hesitancy to become church members is very often not a high-handed rebellion, as in the scenario that I just outlined, but rather it's a simple lack of teaching on the subject. They've never seen the significance of these things from the scriptures. And so we use a very different tone with this group than with that first group. We don't view them as being rebellious in the same way. We simply want to show these things from the scriptures. So if you belong to this second group, then it is our hope that as you see how these things fit together, the organic unity between baptism, communion, and accountability, that you would come to understand the biblical significance of these things and have the ordinances take on their full biblical meaning for you as you then join the church. And the ordinances Christ has given are certainly meant to be meaningful. If you look at church history, and in particular to our tradition, the Reformed tradition, the Lord's Supper has always held an extremely important place. Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote, There is in this action more communion with God than in any other religious act. 
We have not so near a communion with a person, either by petitioning for something we want, or returning him thanks for a favor received, as we have by sitting with him at his table, partaking of the same bread and the same cup. Close quote. Uh, Puritan John Owen, whose words seem perfect for our day, wrote this. He says, one reason why we so little value the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and profit so little by it may be because we understand so little of the nature of that special communion with Christ which we have therein. As our confession puts it, worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. So notice that as the confession is being careful to avoid the errors of Roman Catholicism, again, their view of transubstantiation, the idea that the bread and wine become the literal, physical body and blood of Christ, we also do not want to fall into the opposite ditch, where the sacraments lose their significance. Remember again the weighty language of the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the body and the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The language of scripture would tell us that there is more than just a simple object lesson here. Paul calls it a cup of blessing, participation in the body and blood of Christ. He is present in a unique way to believers who receive this ordinance by faith. This is not superstition. It is simply the recognition that Christ intends for a special blessing for his church, an opportunity to commune with him in a unique way through this sacrament. As Edward Reynolds put it, Christ is present not just in his divine omnipresence, but by the powerful working of his Holy Spirit. Just as the sun is present to the earth in the shining of its warm rays, the main end of the sacrament is to unite the faithful unto Christ. And so I hope you see that this is no light thing. This is not something to be done flippantly or casually. Now, the fact that it has been approached casually, uh, offered to all, with no tie to accountability in many churches, is no reason at all for us to adopt a similarly flippant approach. So we will continue to hold high standards for those who come to the table, for this is a weighty matter. Consider the solemn warning of 1 Corinthians 11.27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty considering the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, 
and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Now, firstly, this is not a question of whether or not someone has lived well enough in the past week to have made themselves personally worthy of the Lord's Supper. Amen? If this were the case, then nobody, not even the most sanctified among us, should ever partake of the Lord's Supper. For who among us is worthy of the blessings of Christ? And so to make the Lord's Supper into a search for personal worthiness is to turn this ordinance on its head. It is to destroy the gospel which it signifies. Brothers and sisters, this is the blood and body of Christ. This is the gospel put on display through signs that are visible through our senses. The message of the gospel is not one which affirms our merits or our personal worthiness. The message of the gospel begins with our deep unworthiness. What are we but sinners? We have broken God's holy law, rebelled against him. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it is all of this that is the reason why we are in such desperate need of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his body for us, who poured out his blood, the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. When we come to the table, we are saying nothing at all about our worthiness, but we are glorifying Christ for his all-sufficiency. We are glorifying him for his worth, the value of his blood, the depth of his grace that covers over sinners like us and spares us from the judgment that our sins deserve. So do not destroy the meaning of the Lord's Supper by supposing that we are looking for personal worthiness before coming to the table. Instead, we are simply examining ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Is there still unrepentant sin in our lives? Is there something we have not been dealing with? Is there some secret sin that we must confess to God? Is there some duty that we have been neglecting? Have we repented of all known sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? And again, this is one of the reasons why we confess our sins to the Lord as part of every Lord's Day service. We use this time to examine ourselves, to confess our sins to God, to trust in Christ's promise of forgiveness. And so we can then partake of the Lord's Supper with a clean conscience every week. The Lord's Supper is one of the blessings that God intends for his people. It is a wonderful sign and remembrance of the great work of God, the great deliverance of God, who is accomplishing his mission by reconciling his fallen creation to himself through the person and work of his Son. So, brothers and sisters, come to the table and receive blessing for your soul. Come and commune with the crucified and risen Christ, 
receive the supper for spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Come and receive his body given for you, and his blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray for the elements. <clears throat> we thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body broken for us, and for your blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying the benefits of Christ's perfect sacrifice to us. Triune God, we ask now for your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May they nourish our spirits as we remember and proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. Amen. <clears throat> 